Welcome to the Public Morality. Florida's Department of Education made news recently with its revised Black History Curriculum. The 216-page document is noted largely for several comments, including the enslaved developed skills for the personal benefit, as well as citing violent acts committed against and by African-Americans during the 1920 Okoye Massacre, which left between 30 and 35 African-Americans dead and destruction of black homes and businesses in order to prevent African-Americans from voting. But as with most things in our public discourse, more people are weighing in with an opinion than have actually read the document. Glenn Alshuler and David Whitman recently co-authored a piece for The Hill entitled, Florida's New Black History Standards Are Misleading and Offensive. Alshuler is a history professor at Cornell University and Whitman is president of Hamilton College. Glenn Alshuler, David Whitman, welcome to the public morality. Delighted to be here. Now, Glenn, Glenn, I'll begin with you. Um, let's, I want to begin with the title. And I realize in, in many cases, the writers of an opinion piece don't always contribute to a title, but either way, the title is germane to what was written. So why, in your view, was uh, the Florida standards misleading? Well, uh, the title was our title, uh, and we used the terms misleading and offensive uh, after some thought. Misleading suggests, we believe accurately, that the standards, the revised Black history standards, present a misleading view of slavery, of Jim Crow, of the circumstances of African Americans, and in particular, they did so by emphasizing the acquisition of skills that, according to the standards, accrued to the personal benefits uh, of those who got those skills. That is both misleading and offensive, and a claim in the standards that violence was, was um, uh, committed by uh, African-Americans as well as against African-Americans during the Jim Crow era uh, and through the 20th century. And that too is misleading uh, and offensive. David, David, anything you would like to add? Well, I would just add that um, there are two that really do stand out, and they were not supported by the majority of the work group that prepared the standards. So I think um, Florida needs to take a close look at this, acknowledge that they made some mistakes in the development of these standards, and then think about how to um, repair those mistakes. Glenn, a common uh, retort uh, to those accusations, um, uh, many of the critics uh, will, will say that people such as yourself have cherry-picked a small portion of the language void of any, void of any context. Uh, it's a 216-page document. How would you respond to that? 
Well, if you take a look at the document as a whole, it presents a view uh, of the experience of African Americans in slavery and after slavery. And these particular um, concerns that we raised are egregious examples. So David, a, a common retort to, to the accusations um, that you've made in your piece that many would say that individuals such as yourself have cherry-picked a small portion of the language Void of any context, they say it's a 216-page document. How would you respond to that? Well, I understand the criticism. I think it's um, uh, off the mark for a couple of reasons. The two things that critics have focused on and that we point out in our piece are the most notable aspects of the standards, which are problematic. But there are other problems with the standards as well. So, for example, they tend to situate chattel slavery in the United States as if it were comparable to the way slavery was in use in other countries and in other parts of the world. They talk, for example, about Barbary pirates selling Europeans into slavery in Muslim countries. They compare it to the caste system in India. And this is really a way of downplaying what was a very different system in the United States and one that persisted at a scale uh, unlike that in other countries well into the 19th century. And the standards tend to downplay um, significantly the horror and brutality of slavery. Uh, they talk about harsh conditions and about child mortality, but they don't really focus on the fact that millions um, of enslaved persons were murdered, raped, beaten, traded, sold, treated as property, uh, issues of family separation um, and the extent uh, of working conditions and the barbarous treatment of many of people who were enslaved. So I think there are a number of ways in which there are problems beyond the two specific and most egregious examples that we and other critics have cited. So Byron, may I pick up on that for just please, a moment? Please, please. Go ahead, Glenn. Uh, so uh, first of all, when a, a, a claim is made that African-Americans acquired skills that accrued to their personal benefits, that is a claim that begs to be interrogated. And I'm going to give you an example. If someone wrote a 200-page treatise on the Holocaust and said that Jews in extermination camps working with Joseph Mengele in his laboratory picked up some laboratory skills that ultimately accrued to their personal benefits, I don't think that people would say you're cherry picking uh, uh, that if you said correctly, that is a grotesque and offensive characterization of slaves. Millions of slaves, millions of Africans came to the New World. Many of them died on the passage to the New World. 
They didn't acquire skills that accrue to their personal benefit. And the overwhelming percentage of African slaves died in slavery. Those, any skills they acquired did not accrue to their personal benefit. And indeed, slaveholders worked sometimes very hard to deprive slaves of acquiring skills. They were punished for learning to read and write. They were hired out if they uh, could be blacksmiths or others, and the money went to the slave owners. And in the case of Florida, for example, that was prohibited uh, for a period of time. So it is legitimate to do two things. One, to look at specific guidelines. This is one of them. Another uh, relates to the Okoe Election Day massacre that are misleading and offensive. And the other is to look at those statements and others that tend overall to invite an incomplete, misleading, and incorrect understanding of the experience of slavery in America and the United States. Well, and, and Byron, can I just add one sure, other sure. point ahead, David. to London? And I'll, and I'll do it briefly. And that is these standards, these history standards are emerging in a context. They're only the latest in a series of actions uh, nationally, but particularly in Florida that seek to restrict and in some ways uh, shape in problematic ways how issues of race, gender, sexuality are handled in public classrooms. And so if it were not for that context, I think people might have been a, a little bit more willing to say, okay, these, these standards certainly need to be revised, but they might have not have received as much critical uh, attention as they have. But they're part of a much broader context in which these issues um, are being fought out both in Florida and nationally. Well, David, I was going to ask this later, but since you raised it, let's just stay, I will stay with you because as you sort of alluded to, in addition to the revised Black History curriculum, you know, Florida's, you know, you had the, the Don't Say Gay legislation. Um, yes. You have bills about transgender equality. You have bills on voting uh, restrictions. So should we see this, this based on your, your, your last response, should we just see this as an extension, maybe a 21st century model upgraded uh, uh, as the infamous dog whistle politics? Well, I, I, I don't know if I would call it dog whistle politics, but it's very clear that um, you know, Governor DeSantis has said he, Florida is the state where woke goes to die. There have been a whole series of actions over the last few years that have been an effort to implement that um, general policy. And this, these Black History Standards emerged directly from the Stop Woke Act, which was adopted last year. And that act really required the Florida Board of Education to change the standards for teaching Black history. To its credit, Florida is one of a dozen or so states that actually require 
that black history be taught in the schools, and it's had that requirement in place since 1994. But the Stop Woke Act uh, also says that you cannot, um, in classroom instruction, do anything that would make students feel responsible for or feel guilt or anguish or psychological distress for actions that were taken in the past by um, members of the same race or gender, but for which an individual today has no direct responsibility. And because of that, that um, act, Florida had to revise its black history standards. And that act is just one of a whole series in Florida. You mentioned the don't say gay law. That's one. There are restrictions um, on curriculum materials and Parents are given the right to review and object to books that they don't approve of. Uh, last year, I think Florida uh, rejected 54 out of 132 math textbooks because they had references to what, were, what was deemed to be critical race theory or social and emotional learning. There are restrictions on textbooks that talk about contested topics like Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, there have the, the state of Florida blocked uh, the College Board's um, AP African American History course because uh, the Board of Education deemed it historically inaccurate and because it covered topics that were deemed um, inappropriate, things like intersectional intersectionality or reparations. Uh, so that you know, there's been efforts to curb DEI programs uh, at Florida colleges and universities. Most recently, there's been a debate about an AP psychology course. So there's been just a whole series um, of legislative and executive actions. And I think the Black History Standards and their revisions have to be seen in that broader context. Yes, and it, and it is the case that when the Florida law says that the public schools cannot provide instruction in divisive concepts concerning race, gender identity, and sexuality, divisive concepts are defined in a particular way. For example, uh, is it a divisive concept or a fact to say that there was systemic racism in Florida and in the United States with reference to Jim Crow laws, voter suppression, uh, uh, suppression by polling taxes and grandfather clauses, prohibition uh, of uh, blacks from using public transportation in the same way that whites used public transportation. Is that a divisive concept or is it a fact? Historians, I am an American historian, would say, I think virtually with unanimity, that that's not a divisive concept, that that's a fact. And if that fact and those facts are now taught by teachers, they face disciplinary action. Is it a fact that some people 
in America are gay or trans? Yes, it is a fact. If that is mentioned in some textbooks or by some teachers, there are complaints. Uh, and in some instances, teachers are subject to discipline. In some instances, books mentioning those facts are not deemed appropriate uh, for assignment or even to be in the library. Uh, when we talk about divisive concepts and when we talk about making people uncomfortable, we have to understand what that means. And in my judgment, as a teacher for many, many decades, sometimes the purpose of education is to make people uncomfortable. Sometimes the purpose of education is to discuss um, concepts that are viewed as divisive. I'm going to stay with you, uh, Glenn. Uh, how central as a historian is the institution of slavery to the overall, to the larger American narrative? And can it be presented authentically if it's just seen as an inconvenient adjunct? Slavery has been aptly called America's original sin, and it is. It is not possible to understand American history without understanding slavery, without understanding race, without understanding racism as it persisted in the years after slavery was abolished. It is part of our culture, society, and politics. There is much about the American story, including support for abolitionism, including attempts to understand race and racism uh, and combat it. But one cannot think of an education where that is not a core component of a curriculum in American history. One cannot. David? But to Glenn's earlier point, when you're looking at the history of slavery in the United States or the history of racism in the United States and you're trying to teach it, it will make people uncomfortable and it should make people uncomfortable. You know, this was uh, and is you know, a huge, huge part of American history and, a, and an incredibly unfortunate and difficult and in many ways shameful part of American history. And that should make people uncomfortable. Part of what the Stop Woke Act tries to do is not only to avoid teaching concepts that might make people uncomfortable, but also it says that you can't use instruction in ways that indoctrinate, which that's, that's fine, even though that's often misunderstood. And you can't use it to persuade students to a particular point of view, but all instruction includes imparting information from someone's point of view, 
you have to have a point of view on something like slavery and its impact on the United States. And I don't, I don't know how it can be taught without trying to say to students, here is the story of this country and, and here's where we are today and here's the impact uh, that the past has had on the present. So this, you know, there's an effort by um, many people nationally that Florida is not alone in this regard to the adoption of what have been called educational gag orders, these legislative measures that try to prohibit discussion of so-called divisive concepts. There's an effort to put that in place all around the country. And I think you see that reflected in some of these black history standards that are so problematic. It's a sort of misguided way of trying to be even handed to, you know, to suggest that slaves develop skills that could be applied to their personal benefit really is to um, dismiss just the, the incredible horror of slavery as an institution or to minimize it by balancing it with something that someone might deem a positive or to say that acts of violence were perpetrated against and by African-Americans is a sort of false, hand, false even-handedness since obviously the acts of violence that we're talking about in the Reconstruction era were overwhelmingly perpetrated against and not by African-Americans. Yeah, and in fact, Byron, that's why we also wrote at length about, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Okoe Election Day. Well, well that was going to be my next question. So just yeah. why don't, could you just share with our listeners what that was and, and why it got in your lexicon of misleading and offensive uh, characteristics by this by these the, Florida standards? Um, the, the claim uh, in the Black History Standards is that violence was committed by African-Americans as well as against African-Americans. Teaching the Okoe Election Day Massacre is mandated uh, in the state of Florida and a fair examination of that event certainly indicates that this was a, a tragedy, uh, a riot, a mass killing that was committed against African-Americans and not by african Americans. And to say that there's some equivalence between the response uh, of African Americans to the violence committed against them, um, uh, that that's equivalent to that violence is grotesque and offensive. And in fact, let me just uh, add to that. An irony is that Florida has stand your ground laws. And the man who was accosted by a mob stood his ground and fought back. I don't think Floridians should feel comfortable saying that's an example of violence committed by uh, an African 
American. That's what we call defending yourself, your family, and your home. And the, the degree to which there was collusion with the mob, one of the leaders of the mob was subsequently elected mayor uh, uh, of Okoe. The intimidation of blacks was such that the population of Okoe, of blacks in Okoe, fell to two people some decades after that. This needs to be understood as an example uh, up there with the Tulsa race riots uh, that killed hundreds uh, of people. And that's the only way in which it can legitimately be understood. I think that's uh, really exactly exactly right. Um, it's you know one of the reasons people find these black history standards so problematic. You know, in fairness, it's a 216-page outline. That outline covers uh, things other than Black history. Um, It's not limited to that topic. And there's a lot that's good in the outline, but there are these serious problems. And I think the simplest response for the Florida Board of Education would be to acknowledge that they got parts of this wrong and to try and correct it rather than to try to defend it as a couple members of the working group have done using examples that don't actually support the point they're trying to make. Byron, if I I may, I'm going to make a bad analogy and invite some criticism of me. When we talk about cherry picking, this is like someone allegedly saying, Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? That's an example. Uh, There's no other than that when we're talking about slavery as a personal benefit or when we're talking about uh, a former uh, slaves who are being accosted by lynch mobs responding by standing their ground. You know, when you were um, talking, Glenn, I was, I was thinking that the, when you think about the Okoye massacre, that this all came about because there were Blacks who wanted self-determination. So it's sort of ironic that the same impulse that sort of fueled this country's secession from Great Britain was internally pushed back when certain citizens wanted pretty much the same thing. We wanted uh, to be able in the American Revolution to determine our own destiny. African-Americans in the context of Okoe wanted the right to vote, which had been guaranteed to them in the Reconstruction Amendments and which they were being systematically prevented from exercising that right. The gentleman uh, uh, involved uh, indicated that he had paid his poll tax and was nonetheless prevented uh, from voting. And when he came back a second time to exercise that right, 
a mob, including KKK members, were very upset and went looking for him. And this was whatever else it was about. It was about intimidating, preventing Blacks from exercising their right to vote. There's no question uh, you know, about that. And unfortunately, we have a long, long, long history of suppression of African-Americans from voting. Uh, that uh, suppression, some would argue, is still alive in the redistricting uh, debates that we're hearing in uh, in several states uh, in the South, uh, where uh, the maps are being drawn clearly are meant to ensure that the votes of Blacks don't really count. So it's still a, a, a part of our past, and any honest uh, history of African Americans would include that. David, any thoughts you have? You know, I was as as Glenn was speaking, I was I was thinking about um, the difference in the way the Florida history standards treat Black history and treat history of the Holocaust. You know, so the two. Uh, examples that we focus on in our piece, the um, part of, this, of, of the standards that talk about skills that slaves acquired that could be applied to their personal benefit and the acts of violence perpetrated against and by African-Americans, there's nothing comparable in the coverage of the Holocaust. There's no language that suggests that Jews who were incarcerated in work camps or in concentration camps and forced to work somehow develop skills that could be applied to their personal benefit, or that uh, there's no uh, effort to compare violence perpetrated against Jews with violence perpetrated by Jews. So this is, um, you know, I think illuminating in terms of what's really happening with these history standards and how problematic they are. So, so David, are, are they, in, in your view, is it... Would you, if you had to characterize it, would you say that that uh, this group that put, the, put together these standards just got it wrong, or they're they're guilty by some some severe omissions? Which one do you think this report falls more into, from your perspective? Well, there are examples of both getting things wrong and and omitting things, but I don't want to characterize this as something applicable to the entire working group. Since according to media reports, the majority of the working group was opposed to the inclusion of the language about skills for personal benefit or the comparison of violence perpetrated against and by African-Americans. But even, even setting those problematic aspects of the standards aside, and problematic is a generous term, there are other issues with the standards. Inevitably, when you're developing standards that covers hundreds of years of history, and it's done as an outline, there's going to be room for people to say, well, you omitted one thing or another. And it's true that Florida teachers are, are allowed to fill in and to supplement. This is an outline. It's not a fully detailed curriculum. But it's also clear, I think, looking at the standards as a whole, 
that they soft pedal or downplay, as I said earlier, what the real um, brutality of slavery in the United States as an institution. And there are examples of just flat out errors. Frederick Douglass, for example, is described as an African living in America when he was born in Maryland. And George Washington is cited as an example of a key figure in the quest to end slavery when that was not his role and he was a slave owner and died um, owning many slaves. So there, there are examples of, of just factual errors in these standards. But the, the bigger problem is the ones we've been discussing, the one we've been discussing, the kind of misleading um, interpretation on some really critical issues that I think the Florida Board of Education really is obligated to correct. Yeah, and may I, may I add that Please. It's, it's certainly worthwhile to talk about omissions, but it's even more worthwhile to talk about what the um, standard makers decided to include of all of the things that you might say about slavery. Why would you include that slaves acquired skills for their personal benefit? And by the way, as a list of some of the people who acquired those skills for their personal benefit, the list includes, I think David will uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, some people who were not slaves. Is yeah, that absolutely. right, David? Yes, yeah, so the, um, the two individuals who were principally responsible for the language that we've been talking about issued a statement defending uh, those, those aspects of the standards. And they had a list of um, individuals who supposedly were slaves who developed skills that could be applied to their benefit. And half of them, uh, or almost half of them, were in fact never enslaved. And many of the others, uh, to the extent that they acquired skills that benefited them later in life, they acquired those skills after they were freed. So Booker T. Washington, for example, is, is in the list. Um, he was illiterate until he was freed from slavery when he was nine years old. And then uh, he became the famous uh, figure that we know, but it wasn't because of any skills he acquired as a slave. In fact, as a slave uh, and an enslaved person, he was precluded from learning to read or to write. Uh, and subject to serious penalty if he had tried. So, so if, you, if you say, why do you include that when you're not including so many other things, why do you include that violence was committed by African-Americans uh, 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 in addition to committed against them? I think it's fair to conclude that they were included as part of an agenda. And that agenda uh, involves uh, making slavery perhaps less brutal than it actually was. Making slavery less a unique um, uh, US American phenomenon uh, than it actually was. Uh, making slavery, in essence, uh, uh, not something uh, that one really gets a sense of the experience of slavery as it was lived. 
slave women were raped, sometimes often daily. They were whipped. They could be killed, um, often with impunity by overseers uh, and owners. That's the reality uh, of slavery. Uh, 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 if you want to say, as some did at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, but slaves really enjoyed slavery. They were happy uh, uh, in that experience. That could be true to some individuals. Is that what you would include in a history of slavery? Sometimes a fact that somebody uh, was not uh, mistreated in slavery can lead to an incorrect interpretation of the institution itself. You know, one of the things, um, and maybe I, maybe I missed it when I was uh, reviewing the 218, 216-page document. Maybe I missed it. So, so I have two historians who can correct me. But it seems to me, given the conversation that, you, that we're having here, um, that uh, at least according to the Enlightenment, that f freedom is part of natural law. And that the Compromise of 1850 actually put the federal government on the side of slaveholders to return anyone who tried to access the natural law to be free, as, as in a runaway slave. That seemed to be omit, omitted from that document. Maybe, maybe it was there and I didn't miss it. Was it there? I, I didn't think it was. There was, a fugitive, I, I there was a fugitive slave law in the 18th century. Uh, the 18, 1850 Compromise of 1850 uh, put greater enforcement uh, on the Fugitive Slave Law. What is important here is that Southerners said the Declaration of Independence didn't apply to African Americans. The term freedom used by Enlightenment theorists didn't apply to African Americans. They're not human beings in the same way uh, that whites uh, are human beings. And if you take a look at Jefferson's notes on Virginia, you can see some of the virulence uh, of that racism. And that racism was resurgent uh, in the 1840s and 50s as abolitionists became more outspoken. And let me say that there is a parallel between the pre-Civil War decades and the legislation that we're talking about, because there was an attempt to ban abolitionist literature uh, from the males, from the U.S. males. And John Quincy Adams worked vigorously to uh, annul that. I'm reminded, Byron, of something that is attributed to Galileo that uh, uh, he may well not have said, but it's a, a kind of a wonderful way of encapsulating 
this, that when uh, 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 the church uh, forced him to recant the notion uh, that the earth goes around the sun, he is said to have recanted and then said, and yet it still moves, <laughs> have muttered that. Well, it, what we see in attempts to ban and muzzle and smother and omit an accurate rending of American history is that we're having to force teachers to mutter at their own peril, and yet it still moves. And yet um, this is what is really happened. This is history as it actually occurred. And they are being prevented by these standards from doing so and having to risk their careers if they violate um, uh, 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 the strictures uh, of the various uh, uh, anti-woke laws. David, do you want to jump? Do you want to jump in here? I thought you were going to say something. Well, I'll, I'll, Glenn is the historian. I, I'm a lawyer, so I, I defer to his expertise. I would just say when you. When you look at the standards, and this is to your um, to your question about what's included and what's not, there's an effort to focus uh, to the extent feasible, uh, at least from the standpoint of the working group, on positive uh, aspects. So, for example, there's a lot of attention paid to the role of various abolitionist leaders and the work that they did towards abolition. There's a substantial discussion of the Society of Friends on and their work towards abolition. There's a lot of discussion about the Underground Railroad. There's much less discussion of efforts to preserve slavery as an institution, to oppose the efforts of abolitionists and others, uh, and to highlight the individuals and the um, doctrines and the laws that were enacted in order to support uh, the continuation of slavery as an institution. So that's one of the reasons I think that the NAACP and others looked at the standards as a whole and said it's a sanitized version of American history. There certainly is room in the standards, and the standards do require discussion of slavery and working conditions and, and some of the um, evils of slavery. But in context and looked at as a whole, they seem, they seem to be those evils seem to be downplayed in ways that make it um, a distorted account of American history. In a, in a larger context, though, I'm wondering, is some of this that, that we're collectively suffering from what my words, civic immaturity, in that we history is increasingly becoming a zero-sum game. Uh, we can't hold America's high and low moments simultaneously. We have to have one or the other. Thomas Jefferson is either in a disciple of the Enlightenment or, you know, he's a diabolical creature. We can't hold the, We can't hold both things, in, and so we can't hold the tension. Am, am I missing something there? How do you guys see that? I think the way I would characterize it, Byron, is that since the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, 
there has been a powerful backlash against civil rights that manifests itself uh, in, in the extreme uh, in white supremacy, but that also manifests itself in culture wars that center around a couple of issues, including race, and that the subtext uh, of those issues, which are very much politicized, uh, is an appeal to those who think that Blacks are getting extra benefits, too many privileges, taking the jobs of uh, whites, uh, uh, complaining too much, uh, having too great an influence on the Democratic Party and our politics. And to a very great extent, this anti-woke movement is pitting red states against blue states, is pitting some uh, whites who believe um, that uh, favoritism uh, is being given to African Americans and who blame non-whites, uh, including immigrants, Hispanics, and others for some of the job dislocations, for some of the uh, losses of manufacturing uh, jobs, for some of the hollowing out uh, of the industrial Midwest and other areas. And Byron, I would, I would just add to the um, backlash that Glenn has described has been exacerbated by the political polarization that we are all only too familiar with. And it's a level of polarization that makes it very difficult uh, to have a, a reasonable conversation and a balanced view of historic figures like Thomas Jefferson uh, or even more contemporary figures. And if you think about the role of public school teachers who are confronted with history standards like the ones that we're describing, they're put in an almost impossible position because if they do what I think the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of public school teachers attempt in good faith to do and are successful generally in doing, and that is present as fair and accurate a picture of American history as they can and to be um, as helpful to their students in understanding that history as they can, they're put in an almost impossible position because with laws like um, the Stop Woke Act and, and history standards of the sort that we're talking about, it's very difficult for them to present that picture in an, in an accurate and fair way. And to the extent that they do, they're likely to get criticized either from the right or the left as going much too far in one direction or the other. And really, we, I think as a society, should have greater confidence in and offer greater support to teachers who 
you know, are in the best position to assess where their students are, what kind of material um, is appropriate for them, and to present that material as best they can. Yeah, and that's such a great point, and David has always said it so beautifully. Uh, there is, it seems to me, uh, several important distinctions that uh, that need to be made. One is the uh, the necessity in any classroom of interpretation. Uh, facts do not interpret themselves, and the notion that we can teach just the facts, when in fact selecting facts, as we've seen in this discussion, involves what's more important, what's less important, in a way that itself constitutes an interpretation, what you include, what you leave out. Secondly, a fact these days is being denounced as a divisive concept. Uh, and in, uh, and indeed, the Florida laws don't define what is a divisive concept because they can't. And therefore, what they're doing in the political commentary around the Anti-Woke Act uh, and other pieces of legislation is making clear to teachers, you better steer clear of discussions, presentations about race, gender identity, and sexuality, because if you don't, there's going to be complaints and you're going to be in trouble. That's not a good way to uh, allow teachers to do what they do best. They have some expertise uh, in these fields and they shouldn't be prohibited from exercising that expertise, which includes judgments about what to include or not to include, to, 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 to understand the relationship between facts and interpretations. That's what good teachers do. And these so-called standards and the laws behind them are preventing them from doing that. Well, 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 let me just stay with that theme, because often in our in our public discourse, we become embroiled, in my view, of having reactionary discussions. I mean, like, take just the Florida standards. You have one side saying one thing, one side saying the other, and nuance and circumspection become the victims of that type of discourse. My question, um, as we have these debates, regardless of one's position, it, it seems to be a linear format. Um, do you worry that both sides become part of the same problem in that the unintended consequences of these kind of discussions that dominate public discourse just keep us in some sort of arrested development so we can't get to the place that you all have been talking about where we need to be in terms of education and our understanding of history? Uh, David, 
Whitman and I have not hesitated to be critical of the left as well as the right uh, on many of these cultural issues. And there are legitimate criticisms of the left for, in very different ways, suppressing speech on college campuses um, on occasion. That said, I don't think there is an equivalence to be made with the Florida legislation. I think the Florida legislation is very bad for instruction in American history, instruction about slavery and Jim Crow, instruction about sexual identity, uh, gender identity and sexuality, because they, in essence, muzzle uh, uh, legitimate efforts to have students understand what is going on in each of those instances. We can talk about the suppression of free speech, of good instruction, uh, of academic freedom uh, by the left in other contexts, but this is not one of them. And I will say to you that I am an American historian. I know many American historians. Uh, I think there is a consensus among American historians that the restrictions on the teaching of race are blocking an accurate understanding of the meaning of slavery, race, and racism in the United States. And Byron, to your, po to your point earlier, um, you've touched on something that I think is uh, really important, and it's at the core of some of the problems that we're seeing in national dialogue today, an inability to have a nuanced conversation, to be open to views that differ from your own, um, and to consider evidence that supports or rebuts those views. And Glenn and I have written about the importance of ensuring that that kind of dialogue takes place. We focused on higher education, but it would be true at all levels. One of the problems with the Florida legislation and, and the legislative efforts that we're seeing uh, are really happening in a number of states around the country. There are at least 18 states that have adopted what are called by PEN America and others, educational gag orders because they really are designed to restrict what is said in classrooms, how certain things are taught in classrooms. And not only do they uh, bar specific uh, subjects from being discussed, but as Glenn pointed out earlier, they have a chilling effect. So a reasonable teacher who's looking at vague legislation of the sort that exists with the Stop Woke Act and many of these other uh, restrictive legislative measures it's very hard to know what the boundaries of that are and to be safe um, and not to expose themselves uh, to possible legal action or their school districts or their schools, possible legal action. In many cases, teachers are uh, simply and understandably avoiding the issue by not covering those subjects or covering them only in the most anodyne way. 
and that's uh, you know that impoverishes uh, education in this country on, on those subjects, subjects that are really incredibly important. So I do think you know because of the polarization around these issues, because of um, a sort of a national contest over what will be the dominant value system in the United States and the sense that whoever is uh, directing how these issues are handled in the schools, how American history is taught, that their vision of, of what should be the cultural norms in this country will be advanced if they can insist on a particular vision or a particular version being taught in the schools. As long as that persists, you know, the students are going to be the poorer for it. And as a country, we will be, we will find it harder to make progress on these issues. Glenn Allshiller, David Whitman, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the public rally. It's been a great discussion. I wish we had another hour. I think we could keep going. Thank you so much. Byron, thank you for inviting us. Thank you so much for having us. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.